0: The text, the only text that really, where Judas really speaks, where he really has anything to say in all of the New Testament, in the four Gospels, I thought that this is providential. I think God has something he wants to say to us this morning. So you stay in John chapter 12. I'm just going to read Matthew 10, verses uh, 2 and 4 real quick, 2 to 4, and then I will join you in John chapter 12. It says in Matthew chapter 10, He called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease, and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. In all four Gospels, there's only one instance in which Judas ever says anything, and that's right here in John chapter 12. Would you look with me? John chapter 12, uh, we're looking at verses 1 to 8. This is right before, about a week before the crucifixion, six days before Passover. He was crucified on Friday, so this is right at about a week till. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for Him there. Martha served, which is typical. Mary is the one who's hanging out with Jesus. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with Him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of And having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it jesus said leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me let's bow forward of prayer father we thank you so much even in your choice of the twelve. As horrifying as this is, Lord, we understand that you even had a plan and a purpose for Judas. Your desire is to give all the world salvation, to redeem all mankind from the grip of death, to see all of us live again, and to be a part of your family, and to walk again on this earth forever, never to taste death a second time. Father, it is tragic that there are those who openly, defiantly reject you, but it is even more tragic that there are those who have tasted of your goodness, who have walked with you, and yet still consider you something that they can use and barter for their own personal gain. God, my prayer for Bridge Baptist Church is that as we look forward to eternity, that we would never, ever consider our relationship with you as something casual, as though it were a commodity or a convenience or an insurance policy. Father, let us be like Mary. Let us be people who worship you from the heart with all that we are. We pray that you would open our eyes to see that today. We pray that your spirit would shine upon the text. We pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that your spirit would illuminate our minds, that we would understand. And finally, God, we pray that you and you alone would strengthen our faith so that we could live in obedience. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. In the winter of 1952, New England was battered by the most brutal nor'easter in years. As the weather wreaked havoc On the land, the freezing Atlantic became a wind-whipped zone of peril, driving snow, crashing waves. One observer who was there in Chatham, Massachusetts, it's a coastal town, observed that the crashing waves were 70 to 80 feet high. Massive towering thunderstorms, freezing cold. Into this hurricane, Two oil tankers are trying to make harbor. We're talking about ships that are hundreds of feet long made out of solid steel, steel holes, double hold, latest technology. As they are trying to make harbor, they are driving these oil tankers into the waves, which is the appropriate thing to do. You never want to take a wave sideways because it could roll your ship. And simultaneously, almost at the exact same moment, as these two oil tankers are trying to make harbor, Both hulls on these giant 100-foot-long tankers cracked in half. The bow and the stern floating away from each other. Some 120 men are now floating, stranded in the Atlantic in freezing rain and driving snow with no ship. These things are bobbing up and down on the ocean. And they're praying that somebody will have the courage to come and rescue them. In 1952, there are no helicopters, which means if anybody's going to go out and rescue these guys, they're going to have to do it in a boat. And the order came down. Four men, Bernie Weber, Richard Livesey, Irvin Mask, and Andy Fitzgerald, members of the United States Coast Guard. Their captain, a man by the name of Captain Chuff, ordered them to proceed to the end of the pier in Chatham, to get into a small dory boat and row out about 100 feet in a small small dinghy to a lifeboat that was there, a a Coast Guard boat that was there. It was only 36 feet long, made of wood. Now, you ask yourself this question. If the waves are strong enough to split hundreds of foot-long oil tankers in half, are you going out in a wooden boat? Absolutely not. All four men understood that it was a suicide mission. They made their way out to the end of the pier in Chatham in Massachusetts. They got into the dinghy. They put the oars in the water, and they began to row. The pounding surf was so intense that the pole pins, which hold the oars, snapped, so they couldn't even row their boat. They had to resort to paddling hand over hand. There are no neoprene suits. There is no insulated thermal wear. They are wearing just your standard-issue rubber wind rain slicker and freezing snow driving rain. Somehow they managed to make it out to this 36 foot, it's not even really a boat, it's more like a canoe, they managed to make it out to this 36 foot foot boat, you'd expect some sort of a noble, heroic name, but its name was officially CG36500, not exactly the thing of legends, but that was its name, CG for Coast Guard, 36 for the length of the boat, and 500 for the number of it as it came off the assembly line these things have a bad history of sinking as well have a bad history of the, the beams in the bottom of the boat splintering in rough seas so that water begins to come in and if there's ever a rough sea this is it this is the night these four men only barely knew each other one of them Irvin Mask had never met the other three before they never trained together they never worked together they didn't even really know each other Bernie Weber, he's 24 years old. He's an experienced sailor. He has two children at home, a wife and two kids. His good friend, Andy Fitzgerald, 22 years old, has a wife at home and a child on the way. Irvin Mask, the one that none of them know, and they won't know this until they get back to the dock later that night. He also is married with a child on the way. Captain Chuff orders them to go. They make it out to the boat. They flip on the power. The boat starts to hum. They power the motorboat out to the end of the harbor. There's a sandbar there, shifting sands, and the waves on the other side of the sandbar are towering at 80 feet high. As they make it to the edge of the harbor, as they're looking out at the ocean before them, thinking that there's 38 men that they're tasked with rescuing in a boat that's 36 foot long and designed to carry no more than 15. The three look back at Bernie Weber. He's piloting the boat. And all three will tell you that to this day, they thought they'd just go out to the end of the harbor, take a look, and say, this is pointless, and come home. In rain slickers, they were already freezing cold. Bernie Weber looked out at those ocean, at that ocean. And he was hoping that his captain, when he reported back to him over the radio, would cancel the rescue mission. So he picked up the microphone, dialed in the the radio frequency for his captain, gave him a report. It's a suicide mission, Captain. Eighty-foot waves. I'm not even entirely sure we can get over the bar, out into the open water. To which Captain Chuff replied, proceed as directed. Before they had stepped into the boat, Bernie Weber had a friend, a man by the name of John Stello. He was the captain of a fishing rig, and he had canceled his fishing the day before because the weather was so horrible. And as they were getting ready to get in the dory, he had said to him from the boat, you guys had better find a way to get lost before you get too far out to sea. That was his polite way of saying, just fake it, pretend that you tried something, and then just come home. This is suicide. And for the three men who were in the boat besides Bernie Weber, that's what they thought they were about to do. They sat there idling at the edge of the harbor as the waves rocked their ship up and down. After a while, they realized we weren't going anywhere, but we're not going home either. So one by one, the three men in the forward portion of the ship looked back to Bernie Weber as he sat there in the wheelhouse with the wheel. And They noticed that he was taking his belt off of his waist And he was tying it around himself and then lashing himself to the wheel. And that's when they knew he's going to do it. This crazy guy is going to do it. And they looked at each other and they looked back at him. Years later, he would make the statement I believe I was serving God on this stormy night. Providence had placed me in this moment. In the moment, you know it's certain death, but somehow Christ gives you the strength and the courage and ultimately you know what your duty is. You have to attempt a rescue. It's this last part that gets me every time. It's not something you choose to do. It is something that is born in you. As this three... Shipmates looked at him, he began to sing. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. By this point, all four men were singing. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands, Could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. By the third stanza, they were all crying and weeping. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked. I come to thee for dress, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. And on the last syllable of that last word, Bernie slammed the throttle home, and they raced across the sandbar. If you're attempting something heroic, what do you use to sort of muster your courage for the moment? If there's a situation you find yourself in in which you have to sacrifice in order to see something good come of it, where do you turn for strength? Bernie Weber turned to the cross of Jesus Christ. And while his three shipmates thought him crazy, when the cards were down, so to speak, they also began to sing fervently to God. And they raced out into that storm that night and saved. Out of the 38 men they were responsible for saving, they saved 36, 37 of the 38 on a boat designed for 15 in waves 80 feet tall. As they made their way out into the harbor, the crashing waves shattered the glass in the wheelhouse. The compass was torn from its mounts. The spotlight was ripped off. They couldn't see in the dark. They had no compass. They didn't know where they were going. The radio shorted out. The engine on two separate occasions sputtered and died, being overloaded with water. On two other occasions, the boat completely rolled upside down in the surf as it was pounded from every which direction, and yet it still managed every single time to pop up in just the right way. They made it to the stern section of the USS Pendleton And survivors to this day will tell you, as they looked down from that wreckage bobbing in the ocean, they thought to themselves, I would rather take my chances on this floating hulk than get into that 36-foot canoe. (laughs) They began to jeer him. What is wrong with you guys? You come to rescue us in this thing? And yet they all jumped. They jumped from the hulk onto the 36-foot canoe. Thirty-eight jumped, one slipped and fell and was lost in the drink. But of the 38, 37 were rescued. It's born in you. It's not something that you choose. It's born in you. As a result of what you do with Jesus Christ. When any of us makes an effort at anything courageous or anything worthwhile that's worth doing, there's always an element of sacrifice, there's always an element of struggle, there's always an element in which we will have to overcome obstacles, and sooner or later, if any of us are pursuing anything that's worthwhile, there will become a moment where you have to choose to let go of something precious, possibly even your life, for the sake of something more precious. Bernie Weber had something in common with Mary, and he was the exact opposite of this apostle named Judas. If you are wondering if you have what it takes to do great things for God, I want you to know that you can find the strength, but the issue is not in your intellectual understanding, the issue is in your heart. The issue is an issue of worship for all of us look with me john chapter 12 verse 1 six days before the passover jesus therefore came to bethany where lazarus was whom jesus had raised from the dead now he's coming here they're going to give him a dinner in six days jesus is going to be crucified it's almost over this is the last week this is holy week for him As he comes into Jerusalem, Bethany is a small town just outside of Jerusalem. He meets his friends there. There's Lazarus, there's Mary and Martha, his sisters, and you may not be aware of this, but from the other gospel accounts, we also know that there's a leper there by the name of Simon. Now, in case you're not familiar, lepers don't have dinner parties in their homes because leprosy is an incredibly contagious disease that kills you, and there's no cure for it in this day and age. And so lepers don't have dinner parties, lepers have contagion. So typically, you steer clear of these guys, you're not ever near them, and you certainly don't go to a dinner party that they're hosting in their house. The fact that Simon the leper is hosting a dinner party is evidence of the fact that Jesus has already healed him of his leprosy. Leper, at this point in time, is sort of, I guess, a playful nickname of sorts. You know, Simon the leper, we're at his house having a party. He's not the only guy there that shouldn't be there. Lazarus is there who shouldn't be there. Lazarus was dead for three days. Jesus shows up after Lazarus has been a corpse in the ground for three days. There's a movie that came out recently, 12 Years a Slave. I'm sure some of you have seen it. 12 Years a Slave, it's a pretty horrific account of a man who went through a pretty horrific ordeal. Imagine being three days a corpse. 12 years a slave versus three days a corpse. This man had an ordeal. This man was dead. He was dead and decaying, his body rotting in the ground. When Jesus shows up, he says, roll back the, the stone from the tomb. And they said, Lord, you really, you don't want to do that. It's, he's going to smell bad. It's not going to be good. He says, roll it back. They roll it back, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes back from the dead. So understand the dinner party that is gathered here this night. You have a recovered, healed leper who is a leper no longer, and as if that were not miraculous enough, you have a dead man who is a dead man no longer. In fact, Jesus' fame as a result of his miraculous healings that he has performed has spread throughout the entire land. People are flocking to see Lazarus, to get a glimpse of him, and they're in this house together having a dinner for Jesus, the man of the hour, the guest of honor. Verse 2 says they gave a dinner for him there in Bethany. Martha served. You have Mary and Martha, their sisters. If you're familiar with these two, you know Martha is the serving kind, and Mary is the, from Martha's perspective, the lazy kind. They're not so, you know, devoted to serving kind. She's more interested in sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing Jesus teach. And so, as is true, as, you know, for their personalities, they give a dinner, Martha is serving, Mary is obviously not, Lazarus is one of those who is reclining with Christ at the table. And I would be too. If I were dead and Christ brought me back from death, I'd be hanging out with him at the dinner table. You know, there are some things you just have to say thank you for, and I imagine salvation is one of them. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. The Greek text says it's a litra, which is approximately 11 and a half ounces. So imagine a, a can of pop, about 12 ounces in a can of pop. That's about how much perfume she pours on Christ. It says in the other gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark that she anointed his head. It says here in John that she also anointed his feet. It was probably an anointing. I mean, that's an awful lot of perfume. She probably poured it all over him and all the way down to his feet. It's worth 300 denarii. In case you're not familiar, that's about a year's worth of wages. That's quite a significant sum. We're talking an amount that would be comparable to like 60000 $70,000 today. It's a lot of money. She takes this expensive, costly, very costly perfume and she breaks it and she pours it over Christ. Why? Because he raised her brother from the dead. She's filled with a sense of awe and a sense of wonder and a sense of joy. She's worshiping him. She takes what could be sold and used to fund your lifestyle, your living for a year, an entire year's worth of wages, and she takes that in the form of an expensive perfume and breaks it on Christ, and as though taking a year's worth of wages and dumping it on Christ in one moment of worship is not sufficient, she then takes her hair and wipes his feet with her own hair. She loves him, and she is worshiping him. Look at the response from Judas. Verse 4, Judas, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, "'Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor?' Now, right off the bat, you understand Judas is a man that prizes and values the things of this world. If you come up to me and you ask me, Josh, how much does an expensive bottle of cologne cost? I'm going to be straight up. I have no idea. I don't know. I don't wear cologne. If you wear cologne, that's great. I couldn't tell you the price of this stuff. If you're going to come up and ask me, what does a good bottle of perfume for Shanti cost? <laughs> I, still don't, I still don't know. Like, I just, I don't know, right? I, I'm not the kind of guy to where I can look at a man walking through the door and, you know, I don't even know what is really a name brand form of clothing. I mean, when I was in high school, it was like Abercrombie. I don't know if that's still a name brand or not. I hope it is. Maybe I dated myself there. I'm not sure. But, you know, if a guy were to walk through the the door of the classroom in high school wearing an Abercrombie shirt, I'd know it was expensive. I'd know he had to go to the mall to buy it. I couldn't tell you what it was worth. I, I don't know. Like, I just don't know. I'm not the kind of guy that goes into the malls and shops around and considers these prices on clothing. To be perfectly honest with you, my wife buys my clothing, and most of it comes from Thrift, thrift City. You know. it, it, we're, not, we're not that kind of people. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not pricing these things. It's women's perfume. To the best of our knowledge, Judas was not married. And yet he is able to look at this bottle of perfume that's about 12 ounces, about the size of a can of pop, and say, bam, that's a year's worth of wages right there. We could take it and put it up on Kajiji and have sold it for a year's worth of wages for 300 denarii, and we could have given it to the poor. Now, what's interesting is the fact that Judas even knows that. But what's even more interesting, and you wouldn't really get this unless you compared this passage with the passages in Matthew and Mark, in which it's not Judas who does the talking. In Matthew and Mark, it's the other disciples. They say, oh, well, why, why didn't we you know, sell this money and, and sell this perfume and give the money to the poor? And you get the, the feeling as you look at Matthew, Mark, and John all side by side as they're talking about this account. John makes it explicitly clear. Judas is the one who's instigating this thing. He's the one who's putting this forward. Yet Matthew and Mark make no mention of Judas. John mentions Judas. You get those three accounts. You put them together. You realize Judas is a crafty man. He's not the one front and center. He's not the one to stand up to Jesus and say, This is wrong. We shouldn't do this. We should not have done this. We should have sold. He's not the guy that's going to take the stand. He's going to whisper Man, you see that? What do you think of that? Does that seem right to you? How much that's worth? What do you think of that? He's going to hide in the shadows, he's going to be an instigator. He's gonna to whisper to the other guys. And at the end of the day, it's gonna be one of the other guys, like Peter, maybe, who's gonna stand up and say, Yeah, that's right. What are we doing? This is ridiculous. I'm just assuming it was Peter, because he was prone for those, he, he was good for those sorts of things. But John is clear. Being one of the 12, writing years after the fact, he lays it right at the feet of Judas. Judas is an instigator, he's a whisperer. He's a coward. He's not going to stand up to Jesus. What's more is, when you consider this man Judas, the scriptures don't really tell us a lot about him. You have to sort of pick up the clues along the way as you consider the other passages. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he makes the statement, one of you is going to betray me. And all twelve of the apostles say, is it me? In other words, None of the apostles were pointing at Judas and saying, eh, it's probably him. (laughs) None of them were thinking that. In fact, as all of the apostles were looking around the room, looking at everybody, they were so sure of everybody in the room that it leads them to question themselves. They know Jesus is straight. The man can raise people from the dead. He's prophetic. He knows all things. So when he says, one of you guys is going to betray me, they look around at the other 11. They don't see anybody there who's not totally true to Jesus. They don't see anybody there who's not 100% committed which leads them to start asking themselves the question, could this be me? I hear people who say, you know, I can, I can spot a bad apple. I, when, I, when there's a guy that comes in the room and he's, he's danger, I, you can just sort of tell. There are little weird tics and behaviors and things that they do that give them away. Those are bad apples, sure enough. Most of us are good at identifying people that, you know, probably we should stay away from. They're bad apples, but the really bad ones the really, really wicked ones, I'm telling you, they could fool their own mothers. They could fool anybody. There is no hint anywhere in the Gospels for the three years that these 12 guys were following Jesus around that any of them suspected that Judas was a traitor. And yet the Gospels all clearly portray Christ From day one, making it clear, one of you is a devil, one of you is going to betray me. And on the night of his betrayal, when he says, one of you is going to betray me, they still don't know who he's talking about. Which means that his hypocrisy was completely, it was airtight. He played the part, he towed the line, and you would never have guessed that it was Judas. You would never have guessed that. So he's very, very cunning. He's very, very clever. He's very, very deceptive. He he pretends to be a follower of Christ. And yet, the only account recorded in Scripture when he actually has anything to say, John identifies it for us, whereas the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't identify Judas. That's how good he was. He said all the right things at the right moment. Whenever he disagreed with something, he could stir up the guys around him, get them to join hands with him, and put it off like it was somebody else's issue. At the end of the day, nobody knew that it was Judas. Martha, Mary, excuse me, Mary, takes a small flask of ridiculously expensive perfume. And she gives it all to Jesus. She wipes his feet with her hair. When she does that, you know that she loves him. That she's worshiping him. Why? This man brought her brother back from the dead. Just like he can bring you back from the dead just as he promises to do for all of us who place our faith in him. Filled with the wonder of seeing her brother who was dead, a corpse, brought back to life, made to live again. She's filled with awe and wonder. And Jesus makes the statement to her. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? She says, "I do." And he says, "Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live." She's seen him do it for her brother. He's promised her he can do it for her, too. And so she gets down and she worships him. Judas, not only would he not give a year's worth of wages to worship Christ, he'll take 30 pieces of silver in exchange for Jesus. We know the night that Jesus was betrayed, Judas went to the Pharisees and the high priests, and he said, what will you give me for him if I betray him to you. They said 30 pieces of silver. It's the price of a slave. Not only will Judas not give a year's worth of wages for Christ, he will take significantly less for betraying him. Now understand the scene. He's sitting at a table with Jesus, A dead man who's dead no more, a leper who's a leper no more, and he's thinking to himself, what could this man be worth? What will you give him to me? He identifies Mary's bottle of perfume as being worth an entire year's worth of wages, and when he steps into the council with the high priests and the Pharisees, they say, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. A man who can raise people from the dead and cure any disease. Judas is in it for himself. Judas is looking out for number one. The Apostle John says that when Judas said this, it wasn't because he actually cared about the poor. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. At the end of the day, Judas sees a source of income, something that he could, under pretense, offer to give to the poor, not because he actually cared about the poor, but because he cared about himself. In other words, at the end of the day, the only thing that mattered to Judas was what was best for Judas from his own perspective. Mary worships sacrificially. She devotes an entire year's worth of wages to the worship of Christ, Judas is willing to trade Jesus for a comparatively much smaller sum. Now where are you in this equation? When you reflect upon your walk with Christ, knowing, knowing that He can raise you from the dead, knowing that the life you're living right now is simply prologue to a life that is coming, knowing that 30, 40, 50 years maybe, you're going to die. For some of us, maybe far less time than we think. Knowing that in Christ, though we die, yet shall we live. That we have all of eternity. What choices are we making right here, right now, in this moment? For Mary, she was worshiping Jesus. And for Judas, he was just trying to figure out how much money he could make. Money is dangerous. It's a tempting thing, church. Rather than looking to Christ to provide for him, rather than looking to Christ to take care of him, rather than looking to Christ to meet his needs, he looked at Christ as a thing that could be used for a pittance of money. Seeing one source of income disappear, he immediately begins to consider what he can get out of Christ at this point. Jesus is just somebody that's there to help Judas make money. And the scholars speculate, and it's probably true, that for the three years that he walked with Christ, as he observed the miracles that were happening, as he observed all the things that Jesus was doing, his expectation probably was that Jesus would overthrow the Roman government, set up his own kingdom, and that somehow in all of this there would be a huge payday coming for Judas. In other words, he was with Christ, many scholars speculate, not because he cared at all about Jesus, but because he saw Jesus as an opportunity to something better. Now ask yourselves this question. When you look at Jesus... Is he just your ticket out of hell and into heaven? Are you just looking at him for insurance policy? Or do you care about him? Does he matter to you? Do you live your life for him? Or are you living your life for financial security, a wonderful retirement? you're just using Jesus for personal gain. You see that when you follow biblical principles, it turns out well in the end and people tend to be happier as Christians. Do you you sort of buy that myth? Because it's not necessarily true, but you, you sort of make that calculation and say, it would be better for me to be a Christian because there's good things that come out of that. Or do you look at the one who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins as a person to befriend to walk with, and to worship. Jesus' response to Judas when he rips into Mary, he makes the statement, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, that's a passing reference in verse 8. He makes the statement, the poor you always will have with you. It's in the plural. So he's talking to the, all of the group in the room at this point in time. When he says you will always have the poor, he is saying all of you, the whole room, all of y'all in this room, you will always have the poor. It's a reference to Deuteronomy. Now, you hear that and you think Jesus is probably teaching to some extent that we, we really shouldn't be too concerned about the poor. They're always going to be there that's a misreading of what he's saying. It's a quote from Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verse 11, in which it says, there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Jesus is quoting a scripture verse which clearly commands that we're to provide for poor people, that we'll look after them but it's also a promise that they will never cease to exist. They will always be there. Now, Christ's statement is, you guys will always have poor people, but you will not always have me, which means that there's a priority. There's an order here. When it comes to looking after the needs of others versus worshiping Jesus, worshiping Jesus always trumps taking care of the poor. In fact, the worship of Christ is really what undergirds taking care of the poor. It's a motivation the heart of worship, which leads us to consider looking after those who are less fortunate. His statement right before that is, leave her alone. Judas is ripping in saying, why did she not sell this for 300 denarii? And Christ's statement is a really peculiar one. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What does he mean when he says, so that she may keep it? She's already poured it out. She's already poured out all of the perfume all over Jesus. So there's no keeping the perfume. There's no amount of perfume left. She's broken this jar. She's put it all over Christ. He's not dead yet. He's going to die in about six, seven days' time. So when Christ says to Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, he's not talking about her holding onto this flask of expensive perfume for the next six, seven days so that she can use it to anoint him for his burial when he actually does die. His statement to Judas is, you need to leave her alone, this is a purpose clause, so that, in order that, for the purpose of she keeping it for the day of my burial. This word keep is a peculiar word. It can be used in a number of ways. I keep my lawn cut short. In other words, I cut my lawn, it's a once and done act. I cut it, and then guess what? The grass grows, and I have to go back and cut it again the next week. So when you say you have to keep something, there's an idea of maintenance there. It's something that you do, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. When Christ says, leave her alone so that she may keep it, the idea here is not that she's going to hold on to this broken jar or that she's going to somehow go and scoop up all the little fragments of oil, the little drops of oil that are all over the place. The idea here is, Judas, you need to back off so that what she has done for me, she can hold it, that she can maintain it, that she can hang on to it when the moment comes in which I'm going to die. Leave her alone in order to, that she can keep this. Keep what exactly? He's not talking about perfume. He's not talking about a jar. He's talking about her heart of worship. He's talking about the emotion that prompted her to do what she did. Judas, by being critical of Mary, is stealing away that awe, and that wonder. That's what makes Judas so poisonous. Listen to me. You will meet people every day of your life who are going to do things that are wrong. They're going to do things that you wish they wouldn't do. They're going to hurt you. You will always encounter individuals who will use their relationship with you for personal enrichment, take advantage of you, there will always be these individuals. But the real danger of a Judas is not what they do to you, and they certainly can't do anything to Jesus that he hasn't foreordained. The real danger here is the impact that his biting, critical words will have on Mary. His statement to Judas is a command. Leave her alone. He steps in there as as Judas is sitting there prompting all these other disciples, like, oh man, we could have sold this for money. Jesus steps in He says, you guys need to back off, step off, so that she, in order that, for the purpose of her keeping this, holding this moment. There's a day coming in which it's going to be very dark. What day is that? The day of Christ's burial. And she's going to need a heart of worship. When you don't understand everything that's going on, when you can't make heads or tails of the world around you, when life seems bleak, the man who can raise people from the dead and the man who can heal any and every disease, when you can't understand the world around you, you have to have a heart of worship for this man. There are lots of great things that we can do with our lives. There are lots of noble callings and noble professions. But there's only one Savior that merits our worship. And every calling and every profession in which we find ourselves in has to be oriented on the fact that He died for us and we're going to live forever as a result of that. So when it comes to things like money, Judas is quick to trade Jesus for some cold, hard cash. We have to have money. We have to go out and we have to have jobs and we have to make a paycheck and we've got to provide for our families. But it should never be something that we're looking to get no matter the cost. It should never be something that we're pursuing, even if it means trading someone or turning on someone or taking advantage of someone. We have to have money, but it should be like fire in our hands. We have it, we use it, we need it, but we don't cling to it. And if there's ever a moment in which we're tempted to turn from Christ as a result of money, we should throw that away and hold to Jesus. There's an opportunity that Judas had to be one of the twelve. But for him... 30 pieces of silver was more significant than inheriting eternal life. This is the last thing which I want to bring your attention to from Judas. Judas didn't go to heaven. Some of you in this room might not make it to heaven Judas walked with Christ. He was there with him. He saw everything. Some of you, you're part of this church. You may even be involved in Bible studies. You may even go to life group every week. Yet, you still might not be making it to heaven. Judas's problem, the reason he went to hell, was not because he betrayed Jesus, as horrific as that was. The reason why Judas doesn't make it to heaven is not because he doesn't feel sorrow or shame or regret over what he did. The scriptures are clear. He felt the agony of his actions. He tried to take the money back to the high priests, and when that didn't suffice, he even committed suicide hanging himself on a tree. And yet the scriptures are clear, none of that gets you to heaven. It isn't shame, it isn't guilt, it isn't embarrassment, it isn't remorse, You can feel guilty, you can feel shameful, and you can go to church and you can go to life group all you want. You still will not make it. What Judas needed to do with the shame and the guilt and the remorse was to repent and to ask Jesus for forgiveness. There is no sin that Christ is not prepared to forgive and to pay for on the cross. It's there. It's available. You can have it. You can have it right now. The question is are you looking at Jesus as an insurance policy? Because if you are, if he's just some guy you have to have some sort of understanding about, and by knowing about him, then that gets you out of hell into heaven, well, you're trading him. You're treating him just like Judas did. And you're probably not going to make it. You're trading Christ. For convenience. What is really necessary for you to go to heaven is to repent. In other words, it is walking with Him. Having a relationship with Him where He matters to you. These are the only things that count that and asking Him to forgive you for all the times that you have not walked with Him. If Judas had done that, rather than committing suicide, he could have been forgiven. The problem was that through his act of suicide, he tried to atone himself for a crime which he could never atone for. Is that where some of you are at today? Do you just look at your time going to church, look at your time involved in Bible studies as atonement? These are the things that good Christians do in order to go to heaven? You need to ask Jesus for forgiveness. There's nothing you need to do except repent and believe in Jesus Christ. He says, leave her alone so that she can keep this. There is a day coming, and the cross is proof of that, in which all of the evildoers, all of the Judases, will be separated out from all of the Marys, from all of the Marthas, so that there will no longer be any influence of wickedness or sin which would cause us to turn away from Jesus Christ. Bernie Weber slammed the throttle home on his 36-foot canoe, piling it out into a certain death. When he was asked about it afterwards, he said, what was on your mind? Didn't you stop to think about your wife and your kid? He said, that was all I was thinking about. How could I look my child in the eyes and tell him that I trusted Jesus when I wasn't trusting Jesus? How could I look my wife in the eyes and say, I worship God. When I know in this moment that he has called me to be like Christ, trying to save other people. And in that final moment, I turn my back on what i had been called to do for personal convenience. Again, those words will just grip me. It's not something you choose. It's something that is born in you if you truly understand what it means to know Christ, courage is birthed in you to where things like not having people make fun of you at work, things like doing whatever is necessary to make sure you have a happy retirement, these things pale in comparison to saving lives. My prayer for you is that you would walk with Jesus. And that in walking with him, something would be birthed in you. Courage. Faith. Eternal life. Knowing that even though we die, because of our faith in him, yet shall we live. Bernie Weber's final description of what took place that night was, he made the statement, there comes a moment where even though you love your wife and your kid, Ultimately, you know everything is a gift from God and you have to just surrender those things back into his hands and do what you know he wants you to do. My prayer for you guys is that you would walk with Christ and surrender everything over to him and worship him the way Mary did. Let's bow for a word of prayer.